Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello, everyone. Stucker, you here? And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the History of Everything podcast. Okay, guys, we, we have been exceptionally busy for the past several days preparing things, not even for anything content-wise. It's just been family. It's yeah. been a lot of family stuff that we've had to do. So Our daughter is at that fun age where, she, where every time we say, hey, we have to go work, she, no, no. Yeah, and it's not great. Like, she's upstairs crying right now. My mom has her, and I'm like, I'm, we're going to be done in like an hour, please. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's too long. We've been playing with you literally all day. Literally. Please, please, just an hour. All day long. But anyway. Uh, we are here to tell the story of King Kamehameha, which I want to say from the beginning, I, I have to say this. Um, it's not Kamehameha, right? It's Kamehameha. But Kamehameha is what I think of because of Dragon Ball Z, because that's what all this comes from. Do like, they just use that king's name as their eye? As an attack, yes. Really? Hey, did you know that in Dragon Ball Z, all, not all, but a lot of the characters are literally named after vegetables? In Japanese? Yeah. So what's or Goku? Or like food. What is Goku? So, well, like, isn't it, I can't remember, if, like, Goku, but Kakarot is carrot. Like, Kakarot is carrot, carrot. That's what it is. Gohan is Japanese for rice. Vegeta, vegetables. That Nappa is Nappa cabbage. I hate it. I'm not kidding. That's literally what that is. Absolutely hate it. If you look into it, if anyone is confused right now, look up Dragon Ball Z and vegetable names. And you, I'm getting a little bit sidetracked. We're here to talk about <laughs> Hawaii. Okay. And King Kamehameha and Hawaii. And I'm telling you this now. I can't really tell the story of one without telling the story of the other. And I honestly did think about doing this as a regular episode. But when I was planning on doing this as a regular episode, I had flashbacks of that time that I was making a whole bunch of short videos about cool things in the history of Hawaii. And I essentially got mobbed on the Internet because I was a white guy talking about Hawaiian history. And the worst the part is there were a lot like a lot of people from there who were like, oh, my God, thank you for talking about this. And then like all of the like white people were like, how could you talk about this? Uh, love that. Yeah. Love that. <laughs> yeah. And so I had flashbacks. So I'm like, I don't want to deal with more drama. but. Either way, we're here to tell the story of Hawaii, and it's really sad that that is something that happens in this modern day and age, but it is the internet, and the internet is an interesting but brutal place, 
So either way, I am here telling this, this story for you all today on Patreon. I mean, who knows where this is going to be later on. So as I said, in order to talk about Kamehameha, we have to first talk about Hawaii because that is going to be the setting for this story. It's really important to understand the setting that all of this appears into. So if you go back in time, the early South Pacific voyagers that had arrived in Hawaii did so at some point around 1500 odd years ago. Like we're talking at any point between potentially 300 or 400 AD and maybe around 900 AD. It's a long time. But honestly, when you look at things in terms of colonization for when people appeared there, they appeared there way later than, say, for example, the like the natives of North America were in America. So these guys appeared there on double hauled voyaging canoes that had traveled over 2000 miles across the largest ocean on the planet. They navigated only by the stars, by the currents, by the winds, and it's incredible that they were able to do so in the first place. This is a feat that is regarded as one of the greatest achievements that mankind could possibly have, especially at this time. These guys were exceptional watermen. They brought this traditional knowledge of fishing, farming, healing, carving, weaving, and all these kinds of skills that would be necessary to establish themselves in a new land, along with different crops, seeds, animals, anything that they needed in order to sustain themselves and, and their communities. They were fully prepared. And mind you, they had no knowledge whatsoever of metalworking at this time. There was no metalworking. They had stone tools, stone and bone, and that is what they utilized. How do you cut with stone tools? Well, you, you make an edge. You got to think Hawaii is a volcanic island, right? Oh, that they'd have obsidian. Vol- oh, right. Yeah. Yes. And obsidian is ridiculously sharp. So for many of them, if you have a ready access to volcanic glass, you don't need as many other things in terms of cutting tools. It's very sharp. Like there is still, what was it? To this day, obsidian is still utilized in surgical tools because of how precise and sharp it is. It, it can be even sharper than most machine tools just because of how incredibly fine it breaks. I did not know that. But simultaneously, it's extremely fragile. So you have to be very careful. That, that's one of the things that the sharper you make something, the more fragile and brittle it is. Still very, very sharp. So you have this volcanic island. Uh, it has all this volcanic ash on it. The ash means that it's going to be amazing for agriculture in a tropical environment. Huge, huge for agriculture, along with abundant sea life, clean trade winds. This makes this archipelago ideal for settlement. And over generations of back and forth voyages, the population of what would be Hawaii would grow and grow and grow. And they would have and develop all these innovative agriculture and aquacultural techniques that these early Hawaiians would use to establish very highly productive, sustainable food systems that could easily feed the inhabitants. And I'll give you an example of this because I thought this was really cool when I was doing the research going into this about the actual aquaponics. Is that the right word that I'm using there when talking about like, like is because it's aquaculture. I think so. I'm not. Because like hydroponics is when you're growing plants using only water, right? So aquaponics is that I know I'm probably messing that up, but the gist is, is that they developed a sustainable system of agriculture that all fed into itself by dividing the land into districts named uh, Ahapua. So aquaponics is a food production system that couples aquaculture with hydroponics, whereby the nutrient-rich aquaculture water is fed to hydroponically grown plants. I think that that's... Thanks, Wikipedia. Okay, awesome. Well, it's similar to what was happening here. 
but they had a whole cycle system. You know how they'll, they'll use system with, um, with hydroponics where it feeds into like fish ponds and then the fish ponds filter back into the plants and it just has this cycle that moves again and again. I'm not sure if you've seen any of those videos. I get weirdly obsessed with some of the stuff that I see on TikTok or like those sustainable home kind of things where so they you have, watch gardening and cooking videos on TikTok and on occasion, I yeah. watch hot people. Yeah. That's it. That's, I watch hobby stuff. I watch hobby stuff. It's cool. History and hobby. It, it, that's what I like. I don't know what I like. You just answered yourself. Hot guy. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen you sitting next to me in bed, scrolling through TikTok and what pops up. It's girls telling stories while doing their makeup and hot guys doing things that means nothing. What do you mean means nothing? That one guy who chops wood and uses sexual innuendos, that is art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's okay. a lumberjack. Uh-huh. Anyway, what were we talking about? We were talking about Hawaiian agricultural systems. Oh, my God. Cut all of that out. <laughs> no. So what they would do is that they had these districts that would run from the top of mountains and it would go all the way down to the sea, usually falling along a stream. The upper forests would be hunted for pigs, birds, and this would be used for gathering resources for wood, stone, logs, etc. The things that would be used to construct canoes, houses, and tools. The gardens that they would have after this were used for growing taro and sweet potatoes, and these would be built next to streams, and the water was then diverted into the garden beds. After that, the water that had gone through the garden would then flow through it and return back to the streams, where the nutrients would then be carried down to the oceans. And at the mouth of these streams, they would build rock wall fish ponds in order to allow nutrient-rich water to fill this spot and allow them to farm fish that they had trapped within it. So they were practicing multi-level sustainable agricultural systems that you would see people experimenting with now, as I said, like the thing about hobbies. When I, when I was learning about this, I'm like, dang, that, looks, that sounds very similar to a lot of the videos that I'm literally watching on TikTok. That's cool. So that's what they would do. Thus, these systems would work in harmony with one another for consistent food production in a tropical environment, meaning you could produce food year round and it was incredibly effective. But that being said, such a rigorous system could only actually be in place through strict enforcement. And that is not something that a happy-go-lucky hippie commune is capable of doing. This society on this island was not living in peace with harmony and with nature, with everything. No, it was very complex and filled with a stratified society and constant warfare over resources. You said strict enforcement can't happen with a um, hippie commune environment, but have you seen some of the cults that have come out of the Western United States? Those aren't hippie. Those are well, autocratic yeah, authoritarian. Hippie. Okay, fine. Like that. Those aren't the anarcho com. Like I don't know what it, you'd want to describe it as, where everyone has an equal say, because that's not what this was at all. I feel like I'd be. Wait, I don't want to get sidetracked. Continue. Okay, so we fast forward, and society develops for hundreds of years, and so by the time that the Europeans first make contact in 1778, Hawaiian society is composed of four levels, pretty much. You have people that are born into specific social classes and social mobility, although it was, I guess, technically possible, it was very rare. This was the kapu system that would separate Hawaiian society into four groups of people. You had at the very top, the ali'i. These were the ruling class of chiefs and nobles, as in the kings, the high chiefs, the low chiefs, 
These were the guys that were considered to be of divine origin, the ones who would rule over specific territories and who would hold their position on the basis of familial ties and leadership abilities and warfare. These chiefs were the ones who had divine blood, or at least they were believed to have divine blood. They were descendants of the gods. After that, you had the kahuna, which are like the professionals and the priests, those who would conduct religious ceremonies at the, uh, the, the heal, which is like the, the temples or the shrines and other places, the master craftsmen, the experts in medicine and religion, technology, resources, and any other thing that you can imagine. These were also ranked like upper. They were in the upper part of society. Then after that was the majority of people, which was the Makainana. These were the commoners. The largest group, as you can probably imagine, is that's what happens in every society. These were the ones who would live off the land and were primarily the laborers, the farmers, the fishermen, and those kinds of people. But they didn't just labor for themselves. They labored for the chiefs. The majority, I can't even remember what the exact statistic was. I, I tried to find it afterwards, but I kind of forgot to put it in there. I believe that it was something along the lines of 80% of their crops or something along those lines. It was anywhere between 60 to 80% were seized. Like taken from them? Yes. For Why? the Ali'i. Why? Because it was a very strictly stratified. If you want to equate this to anything, Gabby, their structure was very similar to feudal Europe. Imagine feudal Europe with knights and barons and commoners and peasants and serfs and these kinds of things, except also with human sacrifice. So they planted everything and then they had to like pay it to to the chiefs. Yes. Interesting. The majority of it. So they got 80 percent tax. Yes. Pretty much. Oh, yeah. 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 It it was not exactly a fair society for them. But one of the things, the reason why this was possible in the first place is, remember, it was tropical and there was food production year round, which meant that. Even if the majority of your crops are being seized, it's not going to be as bad as it would be in some places where you only had one or two growing seasons. It was constant. It was year round. Also, you, you could able to do everything. fish, like worst case, all of your food got seized. Yeah. Well, and- the fishermen also were taxed that. Oh. Everyone What was. if you fished personally for like private use, like to feed yourself? That's an awesome question. I'm assuming they can't keep track of every... Would it be like, po- I don't Fish think it would be caught. like poaching, but there's a difference between going out in the boats, I guess, that would be owned by the Ali'i who are giving you use of the boats to be able to do it versus you standing on a rock with a fishing rod or something and casting it. Yeah, maybe it'll count like, you know, how people don't really, um, some people, they don't, uh, what is it called? They don't put their tips on taxes. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's like that. They just get some spare fish as mm-hmm. a treat. As a treat. Yeah. You know, the thing necessary in order to survive. <laughs> so below them, though, was the ones who were the worst. This was the Kawa or Kawa. I, I'm actually not sure how I'd pronounce that. These were the social outcasts, the untouchables, the slaves. They were the ones who were considered unclean. Their position was hereditary, and they were attached to masters in a kind of servitude status. Marriage between the higher caste, like anyone above them, and Kawa was strictly forbidden. You were not allowed to marry any of these guys. Once they were in this position, you were stuck. You could not do anything. And these were the guys who were typically sacrificed to the gods. Yeah, I know you're looking at me right now. Human sacrifice was a very normal and common thing in Hawaii. Yeah, for for many years. It was not until after it was unified that any of that actually stopped. And after much, much pushback. 
I'm not judging. I'm just curious. Like, yeah. why don't we explore more of the human sacrifice? Aspect? I did actually specifically for this. Because, oh, perfect. Yes. So when we're talking about sacrifice, and I know that this whole thing is about Kamehameha, but you have to understand the society that he was coming into at the time. Sacrifices in Hawaii were usually held in temples, something called heiau, which were set aside specifically for these rituals. The people who they would typically sacrifice for these rituals were usually captives from warring tribes with a very significant importance being placed upon the death of rival chiefs because they would hold more divine power that would be good to go to the gods. The main god that they set out to try and appease through human sacrifice was Ku, the god of war and defense, because it was through Ku's blessing that they would be able to secure victory in battles, which was very important because remember, these were these tribes were constantly fighting one another for dominance. Those who sacrificed were often just bled to death or bludgeoned to death by being beat in the head repeatedly. The victim would then be hung upside down on wooden racks inside the temples, and a priest would anoint himself with the sweat that was collected from his sacrifice before then beating the flesh until it became smooth. And at this time, they would then be disemboweled, and the remaining flesh would either be cooked or eaten raw by both the priest and the chief of the tribe. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Yeah. I don't know what to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's we live in a society. You know that one TikTok that's like, his arms are cut off, his legs are cut <laughs> off, his eyebrows were shaved. That's what I feel like I was just listening to. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, uh, ugh, okay. Yeah, that's how it goes. As I said, it was a very complex society, and the ali'i of different islands were always fighting each other for more land, more prestige, more captives. Not too different from most parts of the world, except, of course, their pension for human sacrifice, which by this time, the majority of places around the world had already done away with. Also, I'm not judging because my island, they also did some brutal stuff. Yeah. yeah. And one of the ideas behind this, and I'm not going to be properly able to explain this because that's a deep dive into religion within Hawaii and the ancient idea, is that they, they you know how in video games, when people talk about magic, that you use the term like mana? Yes. Right. Okay. So they had, I actually think that that's where this specifically came from, at least the idea of mana, is that they believed that there was not exactly, I think, a finite amount of mana, but that there was mana in everything. 
and that the chiefs and others would be able to use this mana as a kind of divine power to exude their will. And that the more land that they controlled, the more people that they had, the more everything they had, the more mana they acquired. Thus, they gained more spiritual prominence. And you could gain mana through the sacrifice. That's one of the reasons why sacrificing chiefs was such a big deal. Because if you captured an enemy chief and sacrificed him, it was similar to what would happen in the Caribbean, where you would eat an enemy in order to gain their strength. You would sacrifice the enemy chief to gain their magical powers. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the idea because all of it would feed in on itself. I'm not going to be able to properly explain it at all. I know I'm not, but that's a dumbed down version for anyone that is kind of listening. So, okay, this is the state that Hawaii finds itself in the 1700s which is when the first Europeans would arrive and find it divided and fighting itself. So in the dawn hours of January 18th, 1778, you have Captain James Cook of the HMS Resolution, who spots a very unfamiliar set of islands, which he later would name after his benefactor, his benefactor being the Earl of Sandwich. So he calls them the Sandwich Islands. The it does not. Islands. It does not keep that name naturally, as you can probably guess, Good. since we call it Hawaii. But that's that's what it was initially called by the British. So this fifty-year-old sea captain was already famous in Britain for discovering much of the South Pacific, and on his third great voyage of exploration, Cook had set aside or set sail from Tahiti northward across these uncharted waters, and he was searching to try and find the Northwest Passage that would be able to link the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. A really big thing that people were going to try to do for hundreds of years. They had been doing this for for like 100 years prior, and they would do this for not 200, but 150 years more after that. I can't actually remember when the first sail, like when they actually sailed the Northwest Passage for the first time, but it's recent, like modern history. It's in the 1900s. It did not happen until then. They were searching it for it for a long time, and a lot of people died. That's a whole other story. I could probably do a whole bunch of journeys from people trying to take that passage. But either way, since he was on this third exploration and he was searching for this passage, he stumbles magically across Hawaii, a.k.a. the Sandwich Islands that he now calls it, just by chance. And with the arrival of the resolution, Stone Age Hawaii now begins to enter the Age of Iron. Sailors would swap nails and munitions for fresh water for pigs and um, getting treated nicely, we're going to say, by the Hawaiian women. The sailors have been at sea for a while and they are willing to swap supplies for some certain actions. Now, of course, the foreigners at the same time don't just bring uh, awesome cargo. They simultaneously bring syphilis, measles and a whole bunch of other diseases that decimate the Hawaiian population. Captain Cook had estimated at the time that the Hawaiian islands probably had around 400,000 people at the time in 1778. Other people would claim later on that it might have been as high as like seven, eight, or 900,000. Even if we want to assume it's somewhere in the middle, maybe around five or 600,000, by the time that Christian missionaries would arrive 40 years later, the number of native Hawaiians had plummeted to 150,000. So anywhere between over half and 70% of the population was dead within 40 years. Because of all the diseases? Because of all the diseases. Yeah. That's awful. It's one of the reasons so, why, remember for colonization, when Columbus first came in and what ended up happening, the reason why the conquests were so much easier were because 
the majority of people were already dead. My question is, didn't did the natives not have some diseases they could also spread back, you know, as a little treat? Yeah. Yeah, of course. And that's one of the things that did end up coming back to Europe for different periods. But you have to remember that with all the interaction that Europeans had had with each other, even with additional diseases, things would move through them quicker and they would have had a higher resistance to more diseases. They would still get things like as an example, malaria, the population in Africa for the longest time would still catch malaria, but they died at significantly lower rates in comparison to the Europeans. The average lifespan, I think I remember of of a of a European who worked in West Africa in like one of the Portuguese trade posts was something along the lines of only two or three years. If you were there for two or three years, you were more than likely going to just die of malaria. Yeah. You ever wondered why the Europeans didn't move further in on Africa, why they just made little trade posts on the outside of it and didn't expand in until going into the 1800s and 1900s? They didn't have the medications and whatnot to fight malaria. Wow. Yeah. I wonder what you'd get if I took you back home and just let you loose in the forest. I'd get I'd get killed by a scorpion. Probably dengue. Dengue would take you out so quick. Probably. If you've never had it, oof. No, no, it probably would. It probably would. Or again, I'd step on a scorpion or something would happen. Probably a coral snake. That too. Kills you in like 10 minutes. Yeah, any of that. Oh, that would probably get me. They're really brightly colored. They look like worms. That's how it gets people. Mm. Yeah, that would happen. So, yeah, a lot of people died, but we are getting ahead of ourselves because that is way further into the story. It's actually beyond the story of even what we're talking about today, because this is supposed to be about Kamehameha and his rise. Though I will say right now, I'm going to preemptively apologize because we are talking about Hawaii with a lot of Hawaiian names, and I'm going to mess them up in the same way that I do when it comes to some like Russian names whenever we've gone over anything in Eastern Europe. It happens. And this whole tale that I'm about to tell you is going to get very messy politically and as violent as Game of Thrones, except if that was set in the tropics. So prepare for this. There's going to be a lot of names, a lot of death, a lot of politics, a lot of backstabbing. Because that is the story of Hawaii at this time. So King Kamehameha is easily the most striking figure in Hawaiian history. There's actually a fun detail about this. We don't know his height for a fact. But the stories say that he was seven feet tall. That he was an absolute like 300 pounds, seven feet tall, a giant of a man and monster. There was even stories of uh, I can't remember the name of the stone, but there was something that was like prophesized that whoever was able to move this stone would get all the mana inside of it and that it would like imbue them with magical powers or something like that. And he lifts it and moves it a couple feet. And it was something that reportedly weighed like two to three tons. More Are these legends or legends? But the, the, the also the thing about it is that we can't really verify because Hawaii did not have a written history. It was oral. It was history. entirely oral. So since there was no written history, it's much harder to simultaneously to verify things. And when it comes to his height, we know that he was probably a very big guy. Was he seven feet tall? We have no way of actually verifying. But they do have his cape. And the thing about Hawaiian capes, what I was able to find through research is that they were made as long as their chiefs or like slightly shorter because the capes were not allowed to touch the ground, apparently, at least from what I was able to find. And his cape is massive. So they were able to estimate that if he wasn't like seven feet tall, he might have been six foot five. 
just like a big guy. I love that you think six foot five is massive. And Gabby, both of my is. brothers are and six your five. brothers are massive. You walk <laughs> around in any place in this in this country in the U.S. Gabby, that is all over the world. They are big. Six foot five is not that big. Gabby. It's normal Gabby, height. Yours is the sense. No, it's not. The average height for a man is like five foot, what, seven? Five foot eight? In the US. No, globally. Was I just surrounded by tall people? Yes. Not just my family. I mean, like, just random tall Gabby, people you, everywhere. Gabby, you comparing your family and the people around you for tall people is like me comparing for what people's alcohol tolerance should be because of my family. Mine is cooler. Uh-huh. Continue. Uh-huh. So, yes, this whole thing is going to get very messy, as I said, and he was a big guy. Okay, so, Kamehameha, originally probably named Paea, he was born into a royal family in North Kohala sometime between 1753 and 1761. We do not know his exact birth date. It might have been in November of 1758, right around the time of Haley's Comet, because there's this whole legend that goes in saying that a great chief was going to unite the islands with, I can't even remember what the exact wording of it was, but the legend that was prophesized talked about like something in the sky having wings. And right at this time, you had Halley's Comet. So it was seen as a sign of great change that was going to come. So Kamehameha's mother was a woman called Kekwai Poya. I'm going to mess up these names. She was the daughter of a Kona chief, and his father was probably Keua, the chief of Kohala. Now, again, the legends that we talk about go and link his birth to storms and strange lights and different things that were thought by the Hawaiians to herald the birth of a great chief. And because of these beliefs at his birth and threats from warring clans, Kamehameha ended up being taken away and hidden immediately after his birth. So he spends years in seclusion, essentially, in Waipo. And that actually is where he gets his name, Kamehameha, because the actual translation of it or what it would mean is the lonely one. Because he spent all of his time away. He grew up as a kid in isolation, away from everything. So he didn't just get killed. So that, 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 that's where he comes from. And from there, he lived there with his parents until his father's death and then continued to receive special training from King Kalaniopu. Again, I'm going to mess up these names, but this guy was his uncle, right? So he trains with his uncle and his training teaches him games, warfare, oral history, because again, remember, there was no writing, navigation, religious ceremonies, and all the other information that is necessary to become an Ali Aimoku, a district chief, because he's not going to be the chief of everything. He's not going to be the one who's in control of everything. He's royalty, but not big royalty yet. He's going to be in control of a smaller area. So by the time of Cook's arrival, Kamehameha had already become an awesome warrior. He had a bunch of scars from a number of different political and physical encounters. He was a young warrior who was described as tall, strong, and physically fearless, as a man with great ambition. And that is where his meeting with foreigners was going to end up being perfect for him. Why? Guns. He knew exactly how to use these things. Or not exactly how to use these things, but he knew that they were going to be important first from the moment he laid eyes upon them. Yeah, they're terrifying. Exactly. And you got to remember, we're talking about Stone Age technology that they're utilizing here. So when guns are being introduced in the 1700s, it's going to make some changes. 
So at this time, Kamehameha and his uncle come out to cook ship in a large double-hulled canoe, and he spends the night aboard the ship anchored off of the east of Maui, observing the modern guns, and he starts to get these ideas of how he could utilize them. And a few weeks later, Cook comes ashore on the big island of Hawaii, where he eventually gets killed while trying to kidnap the king. The reason that he is doing so is because he wants to hold the king for ransom in order to return a stolen longboat, because the Hawaiians apparently stole a boat from him, and he wanted it back, so he tries to get the king, and this ends up with Cook getting stabbed to death by one of the king's attendants. So, ended Cook. But anyway, back to our guy. So for this battle that takes place at Kailikua, he achieves a, a level of notoriety and importance, which gets, gets him recognized by people. Now, Kamehameha might never have become a king, except for the fact that there was a bit of a twist in his fate. Within a year after Cook's death, the elderly Ali'i, Kalani Opupu, his, I get I'm messing up the name, but his uncle, within a year after Cook's death, his uncle at this point is not doing so hot. He is crippled by age and by disease. And so he calls together all of his retainers and he begins to divide his Hawaiian domain. His son, Kiwalao, becomes his political heir, the primary heir who is supposed to inherit everything. And to his nephew, Kamehameha, he ends up entrusting the war god's protection, Kuka Ilimoku. And although this pattern of dividing the succession of a chiefdom and the protectorate of the god Ku was legendary, some people are suggesting it was also very uncommon. Like this wasn't something that was typically going to happen. But as the eldest son, a chief of high rank, and as the fact that this was the designated heir, the claim of Kiawalao to the island of Hawaii was clear and irrefutable. He was the one that was supposed to be in charge. But because Kamehameha was of a lower rank and only a nephew of the king, since he had the possession of the war god, this was going to be a powerful incentive to any kind of political ambition. He was going to want to do things. And so the old chief's legacy had pretty much been split between the two. You had the political decision-making power between two individuals, one of higher rank, one of lower rank, and this was setting the stage for a civil war among the chiefs of the island of Hawaii. It really was not a smart move for him to do at the time, because it was just going to lead to more bloodshed. Now, although Kiwalao was technically senior to Kamehameha, I say technically, no, he was just outright senior, the latter soon began to challenge his authority. As an example, one of the things that happened is that during one of the funerals of the chiefs, Kamehameha stepped in and ended up performing one of the rituals that was specifically supposed to be done by Kiwalao, an act that would be a massive insult because it was taking over his authority. That's a, that's bold. Oh, he had ambition. That's the thing. He, he was strong. He was fearless. And he wasn't a guy who was like kind of, kind of going to go do things in the background. He wanted to take charge. Like he was not going to rest on this. So after his uncle died in 1782, Kiwalao ended up taking his bones to the royal bury house, which was called Haleokawit. Again, these names, it is going to bother me, but this is something at Honanao on the west coast of Hawaii Island, and Kamehameha and the other western coast chiefs would gather nearby in order to drink and mourn his deaths. Now, there are a different number of events and versions 
or rather there is a different number of versions of the events and exactly what happened here. Some people say that the old king had already divided the line, uh, like divided the land, like he had divided the islands of Hawaii, giving his son Kiwala'o the districts of Kau, Puna, and Hilo, while Kamehameha was supposed to inherit the districts of Kona, Bahala, and Hamakua. We don't know. It's not exactly clear whether the landing of Kiwala'o's at Hananao was supposed to deify the bones of Kalani'opu or to attempt to just seize the district of Kona from Kamehameha. We don't know. Some even suggest that Kamehameha and the other chiefs had gathered at Honanoo in order to await the redistribution of land, which is usually what would end up occurring at the death of a chief, and in order to make any kind of alliances that they would need. So when it appeared that Kamehameha and his allies were not going to receive what they thought was supposed to be their fair share and their just due, well, thus began a battle for power and property. So over the course of the next four years, a civil war would ravage the island. Numerous battles would take place, as well as a great deal of jockeying for position and privileges. Different alliances between different minor chiefs would be made and then broken, but no one was able to gain a decisive advantage. Remember when I said this was basically going to be Game of Thrones, but in the tropics? That's what this was. They were battling it out with all times shifting alliances on the island of Hawaii for who was going to be in charge. The rulers of Hawaii reached a stalemate. Kamehameha may have had superior forces and had won battles multiple times, but he was never able to actually finalize things at this point. He did take the daughter of Kiwala'o, Keopulani, captive, and from that, he made her one of his wives. So he, he yeah, he, 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 he forced her, and then he also took Ka'ahumanu, who was once mentioned as a wife for, for Kiwala'o, so he took his daughter and his current wife, and he made those his wives. That is a bold move. I keep saying it, but wow, that guy. Yeah, which is going to make him pretty much equal in control over the Hawaiian lands because he, he has, he's usurping a lot of the authority that was formerly ruled by his uncle. And eventually, Kiwala'o gets killed in battle. But despite that, there's still a lot of division among the varying chiefs, so the island of Hawaii remains divided. So by 1786, you have the old chief Kahikili, the king of Maui, and he had become the most powerful ali'i in all the islands because he ruled Oahu, Maui, Molokai, and Lanai, and he controlled Kauai and Nihau. And through an agreement with his half-brother, in 1790, Kamehameha and his army, who was then aided by some foreigners, Isaac Davis and John Young, they went and invaded Maui, right? So the great chief, Kahikili, was on Oahu trying to stop a revolt that was there. And Kamehameha shows up using cannon that he had salvaged from their ship, which was called the Fair American. <laughs> it's kind of funny there. Kamehameha's warriors then forced the Maui army into retreat, killing such a huge number of them that the bodies dammed up a stream, overflowing onto the land. Like, they mowed them down with guns. However, Kamehameha's victory was only short-lived because one of his enemies, his cousin Keua, the chief of Puna and Kau, then took advantage of the fact that he was gone from Hawaii to pillage and destroy villages all over the west coast. 
So returning back to Hawaii, Kamehameha then had to fight Keua in two fierce battles. Kamehameha then had to retire to the west coast of the island while Keua and his army would move southward, losing some of their group to a volcanic blast. Does this not sound like it's playing out like a drama, like they're fighting all across the island and as his enemy forces are moving in, part of his host just gets blasted into the sky by a steam of volcanic, well, steam. It's sad. Yeah, I know, but it's simultaneously, this is drama. I know it's drama. So like if I were watching this on TV, I would be horrified. But knowing that it happened in real life, I am more horrified. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so that happens. Um, This weakens him. And the Civil War, which then ended in 1790, was the last Hawaiian military campaign that would be fought with mostly traditional weapons. In the future battles, Kamehameha would adopt Western technology, the factor that would probably be the largest component of his success. Because he utilized cannon at this time a couple times, but it was mostly him and his warriors doing the fighting. So it wasn't like he just switched over to modern technology and bam, boom, he's done. He's able to do everything. He did the majority of his early fighting on his own, using the traditional methods. He was that skilled and strong of a guy with great warriors. And so because of Kamehameha's presence at Kalekua Bay during the 1790s, since he was so open to foreigners, most foreign trading ships ended up stopping there. Thus, he was then able to acquire a huge amount of firearms to use in battles against other leaders. But here's the problem. These are new weapons that they can't make. They have to buy them. And that is going to massively increase the cost of warfare. So after an expensive, expensive purchase and decades of fighting, Kamehameha still, at this point, had not conquered all of his enemies. So he gets advice from a seer on Kauai and erects a great new temple at Pu'uka'ola in Kauai for worship and for sacrifice to Kamehameha's war god, Ku. Kamehameha hoped that by doing this, that he would be able to gain the spiritual power that would enable him to be able to conquer the islands. Remember what we talked about before with mana. Everything is about the gods aiding them in this great big struggle. But only if they deserve it, right? Only if they deserve it and if they present the necessary sacrifices. Because from sacrifice, then they would be imbued with power. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. 
but they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters, to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. So now some say that the rival chief, Kewa, was invited to this place to negotiate peace. But instead of peace, he was captured and then sacrificed on Heo's altar. Others suggest that he, at this point, was so dispirited by all the battles that had gone against him that he surrendered himself at this point and was then killed. So either he was tricked or voluntarily, voluntarily surrendered, but either way, it doesn't matter because he ended up getting sacrificed. And from this happening, that made Kamehameha the undisputed ruler of the entire island of Hawaii. Now, he was in charge. Meanwhile, at the point that this happens, Kahekili, the guy that we talked about before, he decides to take advantage of the fact that Kamehameha is preoccupied with his cousin, Keua, and assembles an army, which actually includes a number of foreign things. Like they have a foreign gunner, they have trained dogs, and they have a special group of these tattooed guys known as Pahupu or Pahupu. Pahupu. I think that's more of what I would pronounce it as. And they go in and start raiding villages. They defile graves. They do all this stuff along the coast of Hawaii until they get challenged by Kamehameha. And what happens afterwards is a sea battle called the Battle of the Red Mouthed Gun, which unfortunately was indecisive, and Kaikili is able to withdraw safely over to Oahu, and shortly after, the English merchant by the name of William Brown, who is captain of the 30-gun frigate Butterworth, which can I just say is an amazing name in the first place, he discovers the harbor at Honolulu. Brown very quickly makes an agreement with Kaikili. The chief would cede the island of Oahu, and probably also Kauai, to Brown in order for military aid. And what would then happen is that Kamehameha would also realize that he was going to need foreign help in order to do things, so he gets the assistance from Captain George Vancouver. Vancouver was a dedicated, quote, man of the empire and convinces Kamehameha to cede the island of Hawaii to the British, who would then be able to help protect it. So Kamehameha would spend the next three years rebuilding the island's economy, learning warfare from foreigners, and upon Kahikili's death in 1794, the island of Oahu would go to his son, Kalani Ikupule. His half-brother would rule over Kaui, Maui, Lanai, and Molokai, and these two would naturally go to war with one another, as every single succession seems to happen because they want to control all the islands that their father formerly controlled. And after a series of battles on Oahu, and a very heavy bombardment from brown ships, Kaikulani and most of his men end up getting killed. So encouraged by this victory over his enemies, 
Kalane Kupule decides to acquire English ships and military forces, or by forces, I mean the hardware from it. They're not actually getting the men in order to aid his attack on Kamehameha. So Kalane Kupule goes and kills Brown, the guy that was helping him, and then tries to abduct the remainder of his crew in order to force them as warriors to help him. They want nothing to do with this, though. So the British seamen are then able to regain control of things and ship Kalunik Pule and his followers ashore in canoes. Like they force them off the boats and send them back home. And realizing that his enemies were now vulnerable because they had lost their major force of support, Kamehameha then used his army and his fleet of canoes and small ships to liberate Maui and Molokai from Kalunik Pule's control. There was nothing that they could do now. His next target was going to be Oahu. And as he prepared for war, one of his former allies, a chief by the name of Kainana, ended up turning on him and joined forces with Kalanikapule. Even despite this, Kamehameha's warriors would overrun Oahu, killing both rival chiefs. Kamehameha could then now lay claim to the rich farmland and fish ponds of Oahu, which would support his final assault on Kauai. By mid-1796, Kamehameha's English carpenters had then built a 40-ton ship for him at Honolulu. He now had modern hardware, and he equipped his warriors with guns for battle and advanced on Kauai. However, despite the fact that he was prepared, bad weather would force him to give up. And then yet another challenger, Namakeha, Kaina's brother, then led a revolt on Hawaii, depopulating the area and forcing Kamehameha to return to Hawaii to have to crush this uprising. He then had to use the next few years of peace to try and build a new great armada for new war canoes and schooners that were armed with cannons and equipped his well-trained soldiers with muskets. He then sailed his armada back to Maui, where he spent the next year conducting, how do I put this? Psychological warfare, sending threats to people, just showing off how big and powerful he was and urging them to surrender. Yeah, this whole thing didn't proved to be successful, so by early 1804, Kamehameha then had to move his fleet to Oahu and prepare for combat. There, his preparations for war were swiftly undone by the fact that an epidemic broke out, because remember, we're talking about a bunch of trade with the Europeans, so probably either cholera or typhoid fever wrecked his forces and destroyed a lot of his men. For several more years after that, he was forced to remain in Oahu, recovering from his defeat, and then also probably planning future conquests. So expecting that he was going to get attacked by Kamehameha, Kaumu Ali'i then sought the help of a Russian agent, a guy by the name of Dr. George Schaefer, who was going to help them build a fort at the mouth of Waimea River and exchanged Kauai's sandalwood for guns, which, mind you, that's going to be a really big factor in all of this, is that the thing that they wanted out of Hawaii, the thing that they wanted in terms of trade was sandalwood which was awesome, but simultaneously would end up destroying things for the Hawaiian economy. But that's a thing to really get into later. Wait, what do you mean destroying things for the Hawaiian economy? Sorry, you can't just say that and then dip out. The gist of it is, remember how they were trading all these resources to get guns? Yes. Well, sandalwood was an extremely valuable thing that was being used as a very popular incense in China. So it was one of the few kind of products that China was willing to trade for besides straight silver. And sandalwood is not easy to grow. And it takes a long time to come back. So they essentially, for the purpose of export, to get funds 
to build new buildings, get guns, get all these different things that they needed for conquest, they destroyed the majority or not. I think all of the sandalwood groves wiping out their major source of export economy that they had. Because they, it's kind of like, remember what we talked about with uh, uh, Silphium? Yeah. The, the thing with like birth control. They did a similar thing here, but with sandalwood. Wiped it all out because they just tried to export as much of it as they could to get the funds that they needed for conquest. Is there sandalwood returned to like Hawaii today or? That's a good question. I'm pretty sure that it has, but I, I can't say for certain. I just remember this at the time that it was a huge aspect of the economy and it essentially got wiped out at this point. So I'm not sure. That's a, that's a good question. Either way, the anticipated battle that was supposed to happen, this major final showdown, it does not occur. An American trader manages to come in and convince Kamehameha to actually get a compromise with Kaumu Ali'i. So Kamehameha would acknowledge that, or sorry, Kamehameha would be acknowledged as the overall sovereign in control of the islands, Why Kaumu Ali'i would continue to rule over the island as Kaui, with his son being a hostage in Honolulu. The basic idea of it is that like Kamehameha was supposed to be the overall high king, like the king of all Hawaii uh, or the islands of Hawaii. And this guy would rule that specific island, but be a tribute state to Hawaii itself. Thus, he was now in control of everything. After nine years at Oahu, Kamehameha had now made a lengthy tour of his kingdom and would finally settle at Kailunakona, where he would live for the next seven years before he would die. His rise to power was something that was incredible. It was based on invasion, use superior force, all these different political machinations and shifting alliances. His successful conquest, fueled by the different forces that were operating within Hawaiian society, would also then be influenced by foreign interests that were represented by all these different foreign powers and traders that wanted in on the action. But he did it. Kamehameha would die in May of 1819. He had accomplished what no person in all of history had done for the Hawaiian Islands. He managed to unite them into a viable and recognized political entity. He had secured his people in a very quickly changing world without, at the time, letting the foreigners just take over everything, despite some territorial and political concessions. Now, his successors would not be able to do the same thing, but that is the story of Kamehameha, regarded as the greatest king in Hawaiian history. I can tell why. The man was bold. Oh, he was bold. He was brutal. He was bold. But there was a lot of stuff that he did afterwards. In fact, if I recall correctly from this in the research, Kamehameha afterwards would spend a lot of time changing how things would work politically within Hawaii because there was no need for the old system that they had necessarily. He instituted a lot of things with new laws. He reformed the political system. He got rid of human sacrifice at the time. Like he stopped it, if I recall correctly, because, well. He didn't want other people to get power through sacrifice, I right? Think, I think you could make an argument that there was some kind of moral aspect, but I, I, I can't remember. I firmly believe that the whole thing would be done specifically because you don't want someone else to be able to get more spiritual power, as you said, to be able to overthrow him. So, I mean, it may have been misguided, but what a good thing to do. What a good thing to do. You know, you know, absolutely. But either way, that is the story of Hawaii. And from that, the story of Kamehameha. There is a lot more that comes after that, different things. 
I think we talked at one point about how I, th- I think we did a whole thing on companies and how Hawaii ended up getting taken over because of um, uh, the like the pineapple trade yeah. and whatnot. But that is how it became the entity that it would where. What was it? 60 years later, was it 1873? When was it? I'm trying to remember exactly when it was that the the his dynasty was effectively overthrown. Oh, You're the history me. guy. Don't look at me. It's going to bother me. But either way, guys, that is the end of today's episode. Everyone, thank you so very much for listening. Thank you for all of your support here on Patreon. Make sure to leave your comments below on what else you'd like to hear, because all of our patron exclusives, we're trying to grab them specifically from requests that you guys make in the comments. Correct. We have like a fun little list going. So thank you guys for supporting us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving us new ideas for what you want to hear. And I appreciate all of you. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye. Bye. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.